So turn in your, your, your Bible to Acts chapter 9. I'm calling this sermon uh, Surprised by Story. It's a bit of a personal testimony of how God has uh, altered our philosophy of ministry as he's impressed upon us the power or his ability or power to reveal himself through the simple stories of the Bible. So let's go ahead. I'll start reading. I'm going to read uh, starting in verse 26. So Paul has seen a great light from heaven. He was blinded and then his, light, his uh, vision was restored by Ananias who laid hands on him. And then he went into Damascus, spent several days there preaching that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God in Damascus, until a plot was dis discovered to kill Saul, and they lowered him down in a basket, and then we're told that after this he went on to Jerusalem to join the apostles there. Verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the disciples, or the apostles, he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and he moved about freely in Jerusalem speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked, about, he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. And when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and they sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. Well, that's a great passage. Now, uh, one of the things that God has taught me in our 15 years of uh, ministry in Africa is the power of biblical stories. The ability of God to reveal himself through the simple stories of the Bible. And this uh, journey, if you want, began with me or for me when my daughter Clara was about five years old. She loved stories and she always wanted me to tell her stories. And uh, I had had kind of a night and day radical conversion when I was 26 years old and so I told her all the age-appropriate stories that I, could, uh, I felt were, were, were appropriate for a five-year-old. And uh, I kind of ran out of stories, but she still wanted me to tell her stories. So I had known, or obviously, I was aware that God had given us a book of stories. But I had to ask myself, how many of the stories of the Bible have I really internalized to the point where I could tell them naturally and accurately to my daughter at her bedside when she was about to go to sleep? And the reality was that really not many, not many at all. Now, sure, I could have, I was teaching systematic theology. I could, I could give her rational statements of doctrine, rationally consistent statements of, of biblical doctrine, and I could give her proof texts for those doctrines and that might have put her to sleep. <laughs> but that wasn't exactly the intent. So I was teaching a class in Daniel Revelation and at the Bible College in, in Malawi. And I did know the first 
six chapters of Daniel fairly well. So I thought I would begin to tell her those stories. And she loved those stories. And I began to realize that I should tell these same stories in the prison in Malawi. We would take students there to Malua prison. It was considered a maximum prison. And uh, there were two sides to that story. There was a waiting for sentencing side and then the already sentenced side. And we'd take students there and preach. And so I thought I should begin to tell the stories of Daniel in that prison. And that really changed things for me. There was, a, there was an experience that I had that was really altering for my whole perspective on the storied aspect of the Word of God, of the Bible itself. And so there was an event that I will never forget when I told the story in that prison of Daniel chapter 4. You know uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream tree story? Do you know that one? It's a great story. And Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. And uh, he was prosperous and content in his, in his palace. And yet he had this dream. And the images that went through his mind, they terrified him. So he sent for the wise men of Babylon, but they couldn't interpret his dream. So finally, they sent for Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar after Nebuchadnezzar's God. And the king said, Belteshazzar, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too great for you. So hear my dream and interpret it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream or a vision of a tree that had grown up to touch the sky. It was visible from the ends of the earth. It had beautiful leaves and abundant fruit. The beasts of the field found shelter under it, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And then a holy one came down from heaven and announced, chop down the tree, cut off its branches, scatter its fruit, and chase the beasts out from underneath it and the birds from its nest. But leave the stump with its roots in the ground, bound with iron and bronze, and let him be given the mind of a beast and let him live among the beasts for a period of seven times so that all may know that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of men and gives them to whoever he wants. Now Daniel was uh, terrified by his thoughts and the king said, Belteshazzar, do not be alarmed, but interpret the dream. So Daniel said, if only the dream and its interpretation belong to the king's enemies because the tree that grew up to touch the sky, that's you, O king. And your kingdom will be removed from you. And you'll be driven away from people. And you'll live among the beasts. And you'll eat grass like a beast. And you'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. And uh, for a period of seven times until you acknowledge that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of heaven. Or kingdoms of, the, of men. And that the uh, root of the tree was remaining in the ground means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. So Daniel exhorted the king. He, he advised the king to turn from his sins, to do what was right, and to show mercy to the oppressed, and that perhaps the king's prosperity would continue. So now the king was walking around on the roof of his palace. This was 12 months later. And he was admiring the, the great Babylon, which he had built for his own glory, when a voice from heaven came and announced, your kingdom is removed from you. And Nebuchadnezzar was driven away from people, and he was given the mind of a beast, and he ate grass like a beast and lived amongst the beast for a period of seven times, and he was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew long like the feathers of an eagle, and his uh, nails grew long like the claws of a bird. 
until the end of that period of time and Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes and he looked to heaven and his reason was restored and he praised God saying that the Most High God does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. And Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was restored to him so they became even greater than before. And he praised God saying that everything that the King of heaven does is just and right. And he's able to humble those who walk in pride. And that's a great story. And uh, those men in that prison, those, those prisoners in that dirty African prison, they really loved that story. And uh, we had a great discussion as I asked them, you know, what do you like about the story? And uh, what does the story teach us about God? And what does it teach us about man? And uh, finally, I asked them, uh, how does the uh, story apply to us? And then an uneducated inmate living in that prison, no real education, stood and he addressed the men in that group saying, guys, Nebuchadnezzar had everything. He was the king of the kings of the earth. And he had to lose everything before he repented. And he said, look at us. We have nothing. And he said, who are we not to repent? And I thought, that is amazing. Here is an uneducated man who grasped the difficult doctrine of the exhaustive sovereignty of God. And uh, I remember I used to tell my Bible college students something I had heard the theologian John Frame say. He said, you, you don't really understand a doctrine until you understand how a doctrine applies. And yet that uneducated man in that, in that dirty prison there in Africa, in Malawi, Africa, he grasped that story from the simple story. He understood what Daniel had encouraged Nebuchadnezzar to do was to turn from his sins and do what is right. And he, uh, he came to the same conclusion that Nebuchadnezzar did, that God is able to humble those who walk in pride. And so it surprised me, and I continue to be surprised by the power of God to reveal himself and his will through the simple stories of the Bible. And so what I decided to do after that was to tell uh, or teach biblical doctrine or teach systematic theology using the stories of the Bible. And uh, we were teaching what we call the order of salvation or the application of redemption or the Spirit's application of the redemption accomplished by Christ. And we were going through the various doctrines. And of course, we were talking about the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit or the sovereignty of God and the application of that. And uh, so we were talking about a regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And when we came to conversion, I decided to tell the story of the conversion of the Apostle Paul, which is one of the great stories in history. In fact, uh, uh, many years ago when I was first a Christian, I was staying at a friend's house and I found on uh, his family bookshelf a Time Life book that listed the 100 greatest people of all time, most influential people of all time, and they had as number one the Apostle Paul. And they had number three, Jesus. 
And I think Paul would have been a little bit upset with that because, of course, Jesus is the one who made Paul Paul, and Paul wouldn't have been Paul without Jesus. Uh, so recently I looked online and I wanted to check to see if this was still the case. And it's funny how the Apostle Paul has seemed to uh, become less uh, influential in the minds of many Westerners uh, because he's dropped on the time list to number 34. Uh, but the good news is that Jesus has risen to number one. <laughs> and I think largely that's due to the influence of the church around the world. Uh, but that is good news. And this is one of the great stories, the conversion of the Apostle Paul. It's a turning point in history. It really is. And so, you know, you, you know that story. You've got Paul or Saul of Tarsus. He's going around. He's breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's people. And he's gotten authority from the chief priests. And this is the story I was telling in Systematic Theology, by the way. But he had been given uh, authority from the chief priests in Jerusalem to go to Damascus and to arrest both men and women, women the followers of the way, the, way uh, the followers of Jesus. And on the way, Saul is struck by a blinding light from heaven. And he falls to the ground and he hears a voice that says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what to do. Now when Saul opened his eyes, he was blind, he couldn't see. Uh, his companions, they heard the noise, but they didn't see anyone. So they took him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and for uh, three days he was blind and he didn't eat or drink anything. Now, meanwhile, Jesus appeared to one of his disciples in Damascus named Ananias. And he said to Ananias, Ananias, go to the house of Judas on State Street, and there you'll find a man named Saul of Tarsus. He is praying. He's seen you in a dream. Lay hands on him to restore his sight. And Ananias said, Lord, is this not the man who has caused so much trouble for your saints in Jerusalem? And has he not come here? with authority to arrest your followers here in Damascus? And Jesus said, Ananias, you go, because this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and before their kings and before the people of Israel, and I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias went, and he found Saul, and he laid hands on Saul, and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road, he has sent me to restore your sight that you might be filled with the Holy Spirit. And something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He, could, he opened his eyes, he could see, he got up, he was baptized, he took some food, he was strengthened, and he spent several days there in Damascus preaching in the synagogues there in Damascus that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And he did this fearlessly until a plot was discovered to kill Saul, and so Saul's friends, they put him in a basket at night, and they lowered him down through the city wall. And that's a great story. And it really is one of the turning points in history. And uh, those students in that systematic theology class at the African Bible College, they loved that story. And uh, we had a great discussion, and I asked them what they liked about the story. And they said, well, you know, we like that story because it shows that God can change anyone. God is powerful. He's able to change anyone. And then uh, I repeated from the story I, 
how Saul, actually in, in chapter 8, we're told there was a great persecution against the church, and Saul was, was uh, breathing out murderous threats. You know, he was determined to destroy the, the, the church. And then in chapter 9, it says he was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's people, and he had authority to arrest the followers of the way in Damascus. And I said, well, what can we learn about Saul from that story? And they said, well, Saul was not a seeker of God. Saul was not seeking Christ. He was breathing out murderous threats. He was out to determine to destroy the church. He was going to drag the Christians off to prison. He wasn't seeking God. So I said, well, what then can we learn, you know, generally about people? From the story what might we learn and they said well men don't seek god people don't seek god people are not the seekers of god in fact they said well what can we learn about god well god is the seeker of men in other words sinners don't seek god but god seeks sinners because god is a loving god and god is a powerful god and god is able to change even the the most hardened and uh, resistant and uh, a sinner and so he was able to break into the life of the apostle paul and so i asked those students well what else um, does the story teach us about god and uh, there was a young man in the back named emozi and he was an amazing person emozi he had a certain ailment and as a result of that ailment he spent most of his time in a wheelchair and when he was feeling better he usually would walk or he would be able to walk with crutches. But Emozi was an amazing evangelist. In fact, he was by far the best evangelist that we ever had in that school of 300 students. And uh, over the 12 years that I was there, uh, Emozi was always telling people about Jesus and always leading people to Jesus. He was an amazing person. So I said, Emozi, what does that story teach us about God? And uh, Emoji said, it teaches predestination. And I thought, any questions? <laughs> Ask Emoji. And uh, I was once again surprised by the power of God, the ability of God to reveal himself and his will through the simple stories of the Bible. Even the difficult doctrines, the exhaustive sovereignty of God and the difficult doctrine uh, of the sovereignty of God as it applies to the salvation of the soul. So um, not only am I continually surprised by the power of God to build, uh, uh, and his ability to reveal himself through the simple stories of the Bible, but also I have been struck over the years by our ability to miss important aspects of God's will when we strip truths from their biblical story. When we strip truths from their storied context, we often miss important aspects of God's will. And this, this really hit me when I was uh, working through the book of Acts with our international story group in South Africa. Now, uh, we were, I had, the previous week had told the story of the conversion of the Apostle Paul and then we had come to this passage that was read this morning that's in your bulletin. And so when we uh, go through the stories, we try to give a little overview of what's the most important things that, say, apply to that particular story or help us to understand that story. And so 
if you think about the story of the book of Acts, you know, Jesus had been raised from the dead. He showed himself to his disciples. He had told them to wait in Jerusalem for the Spirit to empower them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then when the disciples, or Jesus ascended, and then he poured out his Spirit on the disciples at Pentecost, and the Jews that were there from all around the empire, they heard the disciples uh, praising or declaring the wonders of God in their own languages. And so Peter explained this, saying, this is, this is what God is doing. This is what Joel said. He's pouring out his spirit in the last days on all people. And then there was a persecution that broke out associated with the stoning of Stephen so that the church was scattered uh, throughout Judea and Samaria. And everywhere they went, they preached the word of God. And Philip, he preached Jesus and the kingdom in Samaria, and the Samaritans believed. And then the apostles Peter and John were sent there, and they laid hands on the on the Samaritans and prayed for them and they received the Holy Spirit. And then Philip, he went uh, and he was uh, at the uh, road south of Jerusalem and he was led by the Spirit alongside this Ethiopian who was returning from Jerusalem and he heard him reading from the prophet Isaiah and from that very passage of Scripture, Philip led him or told him about Jesus and when they came to water, Philip baptized him. And then the Ethiopian went home rejoicing. Now, meanwhile, Saul was breathing out his murderous threats, <laughs> and he was struck by the light of, from heaven and blinded until Ananias laid hands on him, and the reluctant Ananias did that when Jesus said, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and before their kings. And so Saul preached Jesus fearlessly in Damascus, and then they lowered him down in the basket, and he went to try to meet the disciples there in Jerusalem, but they didn't think he was really a disciple until Barnabas said, no, Jesus had appeared to Saul and spoke to him, and Saul had preached Jesus fearlessly in Damascus. And so after that, Saul was able to move around freely, and he preached uh, that Jesus was the Son of God there in Jerusalem until another plot was discovered to kill Saul, and so they sent him off to his hometown of Tarsus. And that brings us to Verse 31, and verse 31 is what really struck me. So if you want to look there with me, uh, this backstory of the outpouring of the Holy Spirits on, on Judeans and Galileans and Samaritans and even the inclusion of an Ethiopian, you see. And then when this great persecutor of the church becomes the great promoter of the church, it says in verse 31, then the church, after Saul is sent back to his hometown of Tarsus, then the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened by the Holy Spirit, and they grew in numbers, and they lived in the fear of the Lord. And that's really amazing, isn't it? I don't know if you caught that, but what really struck me, you know, it's amazing that the great persecutor of the church, Saul, became the great promoter of the church, the Apostle Paul, and that's amazing. And it's amazing that God would choose such a person to be the one to carry his name before the Gentiles and their kings. It's also amazing that the church there experienced in Judea and, and Galilee and Samaria, that they experienced a time of peace, that they were working together, that they were strengthened by the Holy Spirit. It's amazing that they grew in numbers, but the thing that really, and that they lived in the fear of the Lord, but the thing that really struck me is this one singular word, church. The church, the one church, the one unified church, 
in Judea and Galilee and Samaria were working together and they were growing in numbers. Isn't that amazing? You see, Galilee and Judea and uh, Galileans and Judeans and Samaritans didn't normally get along. They were actually at real odds and hostility with one another normally. You see, uh, Galileans were separated, or Galilee was separated from Judea by Samaria. And, Gal and Judeans thought of Galileans because they lived in these areas that were close to Hellenistic centers. They thought of Galileans as compromisers with Greek culture. And so, and part of this was the separate, and they were lax in their observance of the Mosaic law. Now, some of this was based on their, the, the distance from the temple and from the temple hierarchy. But uh, Galileans looked down on, uh, I mean, Judeans looked down on Galileans, and they were considered foreigners in Jerusalem, and they had a funny accent. And in the New Testament, you have, you have, Galileans is a kind of a derogatory term referring to Christians. And even in the early church, Galilean, a Galilean was a derogatory church, uh, a term for Christian. It was a demeaning term. Now, Samaritans were even worse. They were even more separated. Samaritans were uh, the people, they were a mixed people, made up of those who remained in the northern kingdom after the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom and then they had brought in various refugees groups, and so the Samaritans were a mixed group. And what rose up was a hostility between Jews and Samaritans, and there were different rival religions, and they had different rival temples. And uh, Samaritans were mocked and considered uh, not valid in their, in their ministry or in their worship of God. And in Jesus' day, this separation was so great that we're told in John 4 that there was no dealings, that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And in another case in John 8, Jesus was accused of being a Samaritan and being demon-possessed. And so the amazing thing about this passage is that the Holy Spirit was working very powerfully in pouring out the Holy Spirit, or pour, uh, the Holy Spirit was powerfully poured out on Judeans and Galileans and Samaritans in order to create one unified church of people who didn't normally get along. And that visible unity that they depicted was a witness to the world that the Messiah, that the crucified and resurrected Messiah of Jesus was the Lord of all the peoples of all the earth. And that's what's so amazing about it. This visible unity communicates the one multi-ethnic body of Christ. And this was a very important stage in kingdom advancement before the inclusion, before the, missionary, the Gentile missionary movement, before Gentile believers in Christ could be included as equal heirs with Christ in the one body of Christ. There was a visible unity that was achieved by the Holy Spirit so that in their very existence they communicated that Jesus was the Lord of all the peoples of the earth. Now this is an important uh, truth for me, and not a periphery doctrine, but an evidence of the gospel, and a particularly important in the country of South Africa, which has been called the Rainbow Nation at times. Now, in South Africa there are 11 different national languages, and people from different, different ethnicities live in close proximity to one another, but English, South African, and Afrikaner, 
and what they call colored African-speaking South African and Zulu or Kosa or other indigenous African groups. They live in close proximity to one another, but sadly, even in the church, they have very little fellowship one with another. And so I see this as an as a important doctrine. And I just want to close with a quote from a Korean student. We also have, we not only have students coming from all across Africa uh, to study at the University of Stellenbosch, but also from all around the world. And we have some Southeast Asian. And this uh, Korean student who we affectionately call DK, he wrote this. We often live separately due to different differences of race, culture, age, and economic levels. But there is a better reason to live together. There is one multi-ethnic kingdom of God which has been established by our Lord Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection enables us to join together in Christ and to enjoy the table together. Our differences need not divide, but can enable us to form a beautiful, harmonious, multi-ethnic family. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of all the peoples of all the earth. And we thank you for the powerful work of the Holy Spirit that we see in the book of Acts, particularly creating one multi-ethnic family, a, a harmonious, unified family. And uh, we see this at this great stage of kingdom development where now that the Apostle Paul has been called to carry your name to the Gentiles and their kings, and the, uh, the church was unified in order to embrace uh, Gentiles as equal heirs in the one body of Christ. Now, Father, we, uh, we look to you and we praise you, and uh, we do this in Jesus' name. Amen.